Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day like this. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you because, Lord, you've given us the grace and vitality, Father, to be here tonight. Father, we ask that, Lord, even as we look at your word, Father, may we learn something new today in the name of Jesus. Father, may we not despise the words, Father, that come from your holy book, Father, in the name of Jesus. Father, may I not speak, Father, of my own power, but rather continue to rely on your awesome strength in the name of Jesus. That we will live here, Father, looking at things differently in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for it's in Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Um, so, today we are going to be looking at, we're going to continue our series on the ground, the groundwork. So, essentially, we're looking at basic tenets of the faith that are incredibly important for every one of us to know. Uh, the last time we talked on this particular topic, we are taken by Pastor Billy and we are taken on the topic of repentance. There we learned what repentance was, the fact that it was the changing of one's mind, um, changing of one's mind to completely fit with God's narrative. So essentially, we, are, we change our mind about something that we've been doing and we then agree with how God sees those things. So that's what we learned about. And today we're going to be looking at faith in God or faith towards God. Uh, can we open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. I just want us to read um, the foundation of Scripture once more. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, I would read. The Bible tells us, it says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Amen. Let us also turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and we'll read verse 6. Hebrews 11 verse 6. <clears throat> and the Bible tells us here, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. That's talking about God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Amen. So, today's topic is rather interesting. It's interesting because generally when we talk about the topic of faith, we tackle it from the angle whereby we take, um, for lack of a better term, we take God for granted in the sense that we are looking at it from the point of view of this is what God can do. You have faith towards God. Why do we have faith towards God? We have faith in him because we believe that he can do the things that he has said he can do. And when we say, when we talk about faith and we talk about having faith, we talk about it in the sense of, oh, you need this thing. And the Bible has said that you can ask in the name of Jesus for it and God will give it to you as long as it is along with his will. And that's how we've always looked at faith. But you see, what we'll find in this particular, this topic's, the six topics that we find in Hebrews 6, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, I'll just run over those again. And that's um, repentance from dead works, faith towards God, the doctrine of baptisms, laying of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are the six topics. And what we'll find is that those six topics, they seem to be in three classifications that form something like pods. So you'll find that 
um, repentance from dead works and faith towards God are linked because of what they're talking about and how closely related that they are. Same thing with the doctrine of baptisms and the laying of hands. They are together. They are linked. And finally, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment are also linked because of the subject matters that they talk about. So, moving back to the topic of today, we'll see that repentance from dead works and faith toward God are inextricably linked together. So, essentially, what we are saying is that one cannot truly repent without having faith towards God. And what we are talking about today is not so much God's ability to do things, but the fact that God is. The scripture that we read in Hebrews chapter 11, he tells us that without faith is impossible to please him because what comes after is essentially giving the reason why it is impossible to please him without faith. It's because he's saying that anyone who wants to draw close to God, who wants to be closer to God, must believe that God is. And the other versions, I'll say God exists. And that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So we'll go out for evangelism and we'll go out to evangelize. The truths, there are two truths that we are, used, that we are confronting the unbeliever with. The truth number one is that they have sin. Because there are a lot of people walking around today who feel that they are fine. But the reality is, we, ha we all have had to deal with sin. None of us is exempt. So that's the first truth that they are being confronted with, that you have sin. But the second truth that they are being confronted with is that that sin that you have, it matters. It matters to somebody. There's someone it matters to. Because there are some people also who would acknowledge that they are not particularly good people, or they have things that they are dealing with. But as far as they are concerned, they are like, it's fine. Be why? Because as far as they are, in quotes, sin isn't hurting anybody, then it's fine. So you would find that when you talk to a lot of people, they will tell you that, oh, you know, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't assault somebody. I wouldn't kill somebody. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't steal from somebody. I wouldn't lie on my tax returns. All of those things because the idea is that that harms somebody. But when it comes to the things that they do to their own bodies, say they, say they drink, say they, they drink excessively, say they smoke excessively, say they do any of these things that affect their body or are, are look at them and be like, oh, there's something wrong there. They will push, the pushback is usually that, well, I'm not hurting anybody. And as long as I'm not hurting anybody, it is fine. But the second truth that we are confronting them about is that, no, it's not fine. Because what you do, even to yourself, matters to somebody. And who is this somebody? That person is God. And then we have to, they must now be convinced about why God matters. And that's part of what we're going to be looking at today, is the fact that God exists. And those are some of the truths that we're going to be looking at, um, at that, in the sense that God exists. So, as I mentioned this, you might look to yourself and be like, well, yeah, obviously, God exists and everything. And perhaps everyone I'm speaking to in this room has never had the problem in their lives. I don't know. It's possible that you've never struggled with the concept of does God even exist at all? There are some people who haven't. But the truth is that I have. And there are so many people in this world that have, that have also dealt with that question. That all of this doesn't even matter. 
And we'll see. I'll tell you personal or my personal experience. I gave my life to Christ when I was young, but I fell away. And part of the reasons I fell away, from all the other things that were involved, one of the biggest issues I had was that there was a part of me that was even wondering that, okay, this God that we're even talking about, like, is he even real? Does he even exist? Because it's like Paul said in the book of First Corinthians chapter 15. He said that if the resurrection did not happen, then we are the most pitiable creatures. We are pathetic. And that's the truth, because what is all of this that we are doing? And there was a time in my life where I severely struggled with that question, that is it even worth it? What are we even doing? What if it turns out that those atheists that are so smart, and trust me, these guys are usually so smart, well, hey, is that what if these atheists that are so smart, what if they are right? What if all this skinny that we're doing is just for nonsense? What if there was a big bang and that was it? And, you know, we're just here, shall we? We're just randomly here. These are things I struggled with. And for a long time, I wasn't able to delve into Christianity. I wasn't able to ask the tough questions. I wasn't able to talk about the, to try and find out about the strange things. These were the times when I couldn't, I didn't want to delve into the question of, if God is such a good God, why is there so much evil in the world? This is why I didn't want to delve into questions like, oh, what, what can we really say happens when we die? This is why I didn't want to delve into the questions of, oh, if God knew that there was a possibility of hell and all of us dying, then why would he even put a tree in the garden that, you know, knowing fully well that man would likely fall for it? I didn't want to delve into those questions because at the back of my mind, I was scared. I was scared of the answer. I was scared that somehow I'll get to the end of that rabbit hole and I'll find out that everything I had believed up until then was a lie. Was a lie. But you see, that in itself is a trick of the enemy. Because when it gives you that fear, you hold back. You stay in the safe spot. You continue to drink the milk of the word. You learn all the basics and you just kind of stay there. And you don't, there's no accountability. You start to think to yourself, well, it's, it's fine, Sha. Okay, I, 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 I think I believe in God, but you know, there's still this nagging thought at the back of my mind. And one of my biggest testimonies as to coming back or being restored to God was the fact that I got to a point where I had unshakable faith in the existence of God. You might think to yourself that, oh, we can take that for granted. I mean, eh, God exists, sure, why not? But you see, it's important. The reason it's important, and I can say that for myself, is that because I have unshakable belief that God exists, it means that I am not afraid to ask any question. I am not afraid to look at any controversy of the Bible. I am not afraid of any kind of arguments that could rise up. Why? Because I am sure that this God, this God, he exists and is alive. And because of that, it gave me a platform in which I was able to be. And that's what faith towards God is when he talks about it here. Because if you're going to repent, and if you're going to be baptized, and if you're going to grow, and if you're going to do all of these things, it has to come on the basis of a solid foundation of the fact that I believe in God. Not just in what he can do, but that he is. He is. So we're going to be examining a couple of facts or truths, as I call them in the manual. And the first one we're going to be looking at is, is this. God is. 
or God exists. God is or God exists. That is a fact that we have to establish. If we're going to talk about having faith towards God, then we have to establish the fact that he is. That there is a God in the first place. Because if there was no God in the first place, then there's no reason to have faith towards anybody. There's no reason to live a moral life for anybody. Because why? A lot of people, you ask, you ask the question, will be like, hey, well, I don't think I need a reason to be good because it's just simply good to be good. And I will argue with them and say, no, I don't think that's the case because at the end of the day, there has to be an end goal for doing what you do. It's not convenient to be nice. It's not convenient to be good. It's not always convenient. And if it's not convenient, then there has to be a reason you're doing it. So if you say that, oh, it's just, you know, for the betterment of mankind and everything, all well and good. But at the end of the day, I would question your commitments to it. Because if, it's, if you are being good simply because you feel like, well, it's for the good of humanity, what then happens when you are pushed to the moral edge, so to speak? Because there will be nothing holding you from making the different choice. So, for instance, if you were in a situation whereby you had to tell a lie to save your job, or you had to tell a lie to save your life, or you had to tell a lie to save something that is precious to you, if all you, if the reason for your goodness is simply based on, well, it's, it's nice, it's a good thing to be good to people, then you would not have the conviction to stand and say, well, no matter what happens to me, I will still do X and Y, I'll still do the right thing. Because there's nothing standing there. And that's why we must look at the fact that God is. Let's look at um, the book of Psalms. Psalm 19. Look at Psalm 19, verse 1. And if um, someone is there, we can read, they can read for us. Um, Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Amen. 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 One of the most, one of the biggest arguments for the existence of God has always been creation itself. The fact that we are created, the fact that we exist in the first place tells of God. Now, obviously, a lot of people might look at the facts that, well, you're reading from the Bible, you know, the Bible is a religious book that supports Christianity and all of that. Well, if there's one of the things that I found very intriguing of the, about the Bible is the fact that it's very dispassionate when it comes to explaining itself or talking about certain things. In the sense that when we read the Bible, the Bible is not saying that believe in God because I say so. Saying believe in God because this, 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 this. Things that are relatable that we can look at and we can say, oh, yes, you have a point. So he says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the firmament showeth his handiwork. If we look at the world around us and you look at how perfect and how exact everything is, you will realize that it tells of a creator behind it. Because here's the thing. I am evidence that there's a Mr. Farmer to me that exists. I am unshakable, invaluable evidence that my father exists. If I was not alive, or my siblings were not alive, then it's very possible that someone might quite ask themselves that, did this man actually exist? Is it? If, especially if maybe there's nothing in the history books about him and all of that, and he's just there, and just lived his life, woke up, went to work, came back, and just normal, normal. I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole 
market of identity um, trading or identity theft that is usually based on the fact that there are people that no one would notice were gone. Why? Because they had no connection to them. They, there are no offspring, there are no parents, there are no anything. So because of that, what happens is that if the person were to die, for instance, you just find that suddenly the person's identity is on the black market and then someone can buy it and pretend to be the person and be a spy and so on and so forth. Because why? If as long as possible, there's, there was no evidence essentially of the person's existence. I am evidence that my father exists. Just as Stamina is evidence that her own father exists, or Sister Kathy is evidence that her father exists. In the same way, the offspring of God, the things that God has made, are evidence that he's there. Scientists have discovered that the earth is a perfect, is a perfect distance from the sun in that we can receive sunlight and, you know, everything. We can have some heat and everything. And it's also a perfect distance away from the sun in the sense that it's not too close that we get too hot. And it's not too far away that we get too cold. That's why Earth is the only inhabitable planet. The water level is perfect. Everything about it is perfect. And for the longest time, scientists have tried to understand the perfectness of it. One of the theories in which they have come about, essentially, is the fact that there are so many, there was supposed to be life on all the other planets, and then they all died, but humanity was the lucky one, essentially. Earth was the lucky one, because it just happened to be perfect. I don't believe that, not for a second, because we'll find that the exactness of things show that there is a intelligent being, an intelligent mind behind the creation of everything that we see around us. Let's open to the books of Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 from verse 22. Um, if someone is that they can read. Acts 17 from verse 22 to 34. 34. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all, to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent, 
because he has appointed a day on which he will judge, judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to, of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear, hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed among them Dionysus, the Aropagites, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Amen. So that um, lengthy passage of scripture was talking about Paul's encounter with the Athenians. So he had gone to Athens in Greece and he had gone to, he had gone to address them essentially on Mars Hill. What I find very interesting about this particular exchange between Paul and these Athenians was the fact that these people were thinkers, they were scholars. For a land that has a pantheon of gods, because the Greeks had gods for everything. There was, there was Zeus, god of thunder, the god of the sun, god of the moon, god of the stars, god of vegetation, god of harvest, god of intimacy, god of war, god of all, every conceivable thing. Then we have to ask ourselves, why did they feel that there was an unknown god that they didn't know? If they had gods for everything, then what was this unknown God responsible for? What was it supposed to do? I mean, if they had wanted to simply just give him a name, they could have slapped the name on him, no, but they couldn't. There must have been something that got them to the point where they had to tell themselves that this God is just an unknown God, and that's the only way in which we can declare him or talk about him in any way, shape, or form. What that proves to us is that in their hearts, they knew. Because the Bible tells us, and I'll quickly turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, I'll read from verse 18 to 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest to them, for God had showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Amen. What is clear here from Paul's encounter with these people is that they already knew that there was something. I mean... Even in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, it tells us that in those days, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Ask yourself, how? The Bible never records that God went to any of them individually. But it's because it was quite clear that for this world to exist around us, so perfect, then there had to be an intelligent mind that is responsible for these things being here. We could go on about um, other arguments for the existence of God, including, you know, people talk about DNA, people talk about moral arguments in the sense that, like, you can't say there's a moral law without a moral law giver. So, essentially, what that means is that if we all believe in a level of morality, everybody does, but then you have to ask yourself, where did that law come from? Because it must have a basis. No one will just suddenly come and just, boom, decide. There has to be a basis for it. There are certain laws that we follow in Nigeria today that they, we only follow them simply because they're in the Constitution. Somewhere else, they'll be fine. But because they're in the Constitution and we've seen this, we've read the laws, then we know that, okay, these are the things to do. 
However, there are other natural laws that people follow even without, like, without having read anything. It's inbuilt. Those are some of the other arguments that could be looked at. But for the sake of time, I would keep it to this particular argument. The argument for the creation of the creation revealing God to every single one of us. And if anyone thinks about this with any level of logic or with any level of dispassion, you will find that it will be impossible for you to say that God isn't. Because God is. The second fact that we'll have to confront people with is the fact that God is good. God is good. The reason we have to lay down this fact is this. Now, everyone that I have, um, during the, when the war in Europe started, I had colleagues. Um, and because I was worried for the lives of some of them, I actually reached out to one or two of them to, you know, talk to them about God and be like, where are you standing and all of that. And what I always found interesting was the fact that no one that I spoke to could deny that they were like, oh, I don't believe in God, but I do believe that there is something beyond us. Why? Obviously, because you can look all around you, no one. So it's one thing to believe that God is. It's quite another to believe that he is good. The reason that is important is because there are certain people, um, some people call themselves misotheists. So misotheists are people who hate God. So there is an active hate towards God. And there are other people who attribute um, to God something called distaism. Distaism essentially is the idea that a God isn't morally good. So an example, obviously, is the issue God of the Yoruba culture. So he's, people believe that he is a God, but it is believed that he is not a good God. Same thing with Loki from Norse mythology. Everyone knows that, oh, Loki is a God, sure, but Loki is not a good God. Now, it's, there are a lot of people who also view God in, those, in the same lens that, okay, Fine, there's an ultimate power in the universe. Fine, he rules, he's the owner, he controls. Okay, fine, but he's not good. And there's something that we must dispel. There's something that we must break. We must be able to explain to people that, no, you get to, you've gotten it wrong because God is good. And that's, this, that's the next fact that we have to put before any unbeliever who is going to have faith in, towards God or faith in God. Because it's one thing to have faith in God, understand that, okay, he exists, fine. But the next step is that, okay, is this guy looking out for me? Does he have my best interests at heart? And that's why we must look at the fact that God is good. So let's turn to the book of Psalm 34, verse 8. Psalm 34, verse 8. The Bible says, it said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusted in him. Amen. Amen. So, the Bible tells us here that God is good. The Bible has always said it that God is good. But then, I could say that to someone. The person saying, hey, well, it's the Bible. The Bible is written to make God look good. It's always in a good light. So, the only thing we can look at instead is, what has been his dealings with individuals? What has been his dealings with human beings? The greatest thing we can point out towards God's goodness is the gift of Jesus Christ. It's the gift of Jesus Christ. Because there is no God that does not have your best interest at heart. 
that will give away the most important thing to him to save your souls. That's a simple fact. And beyond that, we can also look at God in terms, again, of his creation. If God can take such special care, the Bible tells us that the flowers in the field, that they don't do anything, but that they are so beautiful, so well arranged. The Bible tells us that the birds of the air, they don't do anything, but they find food. They're there to eat. If God would care for those ones that are less important than the humans, then how much more to us? A bad God would never do such a thing. Which is why we have to look at that evidence of the fact that, like, God is good. Genesis chapter 1 talks about the goodness of creation. When at the end of each day, the Bible tells us that God looked at it and he saw that it was good. That it was perfect. That it was in line. It was the right way. God is good. He, he is the embodiment of all goodness. And outside of him, there is nothing that we can call good. The Bible tells us that Jesus said that, why do you call me good? That there is no good but God. And in the book of Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11, the Bible tells us that his thoughts towards us are of good and not of evil. So what we can find from what the Bible tells us and what our eyes and our experiences and everything tells us all points towards a good God. A God who cares about his creation. A God who wants the best for his creation. But of course, the next pushback that we'll receive immediately after that is that, well, if God is so good, why are people going to hell? Why is there, why is there that, you know, why is there that possibility? Why isn't he just nice, forgives everybody, everybody has a good time, everybody comes into heaven, everybody's excited, everybody's good, and all of that. And it's a, it's a valid question, it's an understandable question. But then it brings us to the next point, or the next facts that we must look at, which is that God is a judge. God is a judge. So read me this. If a judge were to sentence a man to death after he has been found guilty of a capital, capital crime, is the judge bad? Like, I don't think there's anyone who would look at a judge who has carried out a judgment that will end the life of a human being but that human being has been found guilty of the offense or of a capital crime that that person has actually committed. No one will look at that as bad. And if we can't look at that as bad, then we have to also use the same mindset to think about God. God, God doesn't simply have a right to judge us. He has an obligation to judge us. He has an obligation to judge the earth. It's the job that he has given himself that he will stand by regardless of his feelings. Because it's the same with a judge. Even if a judge has to sentence his nephew to death, if the nephew has, been, has committed the crime, a good judge will still sentence his nephew to death. Does not mean the judge is jubilating or is having a cup of brandy when he gets back to his quarters. No. He might be feeling the deepest, rawest pain that he has ever felt in his life. But he still has to carry out his job. 
And that job is important for several reasons. Let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let us read from verse 14 to 18. Um, Someone can read for us. Deuteronomy 10, verse 14 to verse 18. Deuteronomy 10, 14 to 18 says, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also, the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Amen. Um, I will also read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, from verse 16 to verse 18. And the Bible tells us here, it says, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time, there is a time there for every purpose and f- for every work. I said in my heart concerning the estates of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Amen. God's judgment is not only not bad. If anything, he enhances his goodness. Because a judge isn't simply there to punish the offenders. He is there to do justice to the underprivileged or to the weak in society. When the Bible tells us here that God gives justice to the widows, to the fatherless, those are the most vulnerable individuals in society. And that is what God's judgment does for, the, for all of us. It protects us and it ensures that we can live in a perfect kingdom. The only time we can look at a judge who sentences someone to death as a bad judge is if that sentence was carried out without justice, if it was unjust. And some people would argue that, oh, God is unjust because he would do certain things. But we'll see again from scripture and we'll see from everything, from experience and everything that God has done, that God has never been unjust in his judgment. I'll read from the book of Romans chapter 2. Let's turn there. I'll read verse 2, verse 6, verse, and then from 11 to 15. The Bible says, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth, against them which commit such things. Verse 6 says, Who will render to every man according to his deeds? Verse 11 says, 
For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. Amen. What this passage tells us is that first of God will judge. The second is that, that God is not partial. He's not a respecter of persons. So it doesn't matter who the person is. And he also tells us here that there is no one that is going to be able to escape that judgment. And that God is not unfair in how he carries out the judgments. Because those who are without the law will be judged by the standard of their own hearts. We'll see another example of God doing this in Genesis chapter 18. That was the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible tells us that um, um, the angels of God came to where Abraham's tent was with his wife Sarah. And after they had proclaimed that Sarah was going to give birth in the next year, he went on towards Sodom, stating essentially, and then he thought to himself and he said, well, am I going to do this thing and not let Abraham know? And so he calls Abraham and tells Abraham what he's going to do. So, and what he says to him, he says that the cries of the wickedness of Sodom have reached my ears. I am now going to go down to see for myself. The example that we get here is a God who doesn't carry out justice just on a whim. God has never been rash with any decisions that he has made. The reason why God can never make a mistake is simply because he always follows due process. It's never rash. The reason we make mistakes a lot of times is either we don't have the full information or we act rashly. God doesn't do both because God has all the information. And God doesn't act rashly. And for that reason, God never makes a mistake. And for this reason, we understand two things. One is that God is a judge. But not only that, he is a righteous and merciful judge, not just simply punishing people for the sake of it or because anything happened. We would find that with every punishment that any individual faced, be it Sodom and Gomorrah, be it Israel, be it any of them, it always took time and there was always opportunity for them to repent. They just never did. And because of that, judgment came upon them. And what this tells us is that we can be confident that God is a righteous judge. And if we are confident that God is a righteous judge, then it simply enhances whatever faith that we have in him. And the fourth fact that we would look at briefly is that God loves us. So we looked at it so far. We said, that, okay, first God exists. Okay, now that he exists, okay, that's fine. But like, what kind, of, what kind of person is he or what kind of entity is he? And we've determined that he's good. Okay, fine. He's good. He's nice. He's kind. But, like, can he keep the peace? And we've seen that because we see that he's a judge. Because he has the authority to judge all people and will judge. But we've also seen that he's a merciful judge. And finally, what we'll find is that he loves us. 
he loves us. The Bible tells us in the book of John 3.16, and like it's a common passage of scripture, but it never loses its power. It says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now whosoever believeth in him will not die or will not perish, but have everlasting life. And the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 38 to 39, I'll read that very briefly. It says that, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God exists. God is good. God is a judge, and he loves us. These are the four truths that any fundamental believer who is coming into the faith would need to contend with. Because it's fine for them to repent, but what kind of God are they repenting to? Or why should they repent? Why does their sin matter? And that is why the topic of faith in God, or faith towards God, is so important. Because we must know who he is. Like I gave the example earlier, in my own personal life, knowing that God is, having the unshakable faith that God exists, has been instrumental in me standing here today. Because like I said then, it ensured that I was not afraid to look at anything. I'm not scared to dive deep into this, into this Christian life, into this Bible, into this everything, regardless of any controversy, regardless of anything that could come up that anyone would tell me. It's the unshakable fact that I know that my Redeemer lives. That God is. And because of this, we know that he would not fail us. And that's why we can confidently come to him. And as we read from Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 6 says that if we are going to draw close to God, then we must first believe that he is and that he will reward those who diligently seek him. And that's essentially the final part, which is that if we know that he exists and we know that he matters and we know that he is important, then how do we then grow our faith in him? And he has said it to seek him. And how do we seek him? We seek him through his word. Because that's where he speaks. It's always available for us to read, to know this God more. And I pray that the Lord will help us in Jesus' name. Shall we rise?